0: From Romans chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. This is God's word. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we come before you and we seek your help in this time. We, we ask, Father, that your spirit would come and be working in our hearts and minds. Father, that you would grant spiritual discernment for us to understand your word, to apply your word appropriately to our hearts, and that we, Father, would more and more live our lives according to your word. We pray this now in the name of Jesus. Amen. Every one of us must adjust our lives according to a few certainties. Certain things that we must consider when we are making choices in life. Certain things that we simply cannot fail to live in light of as we go about our lives. If you are a young person, you must adjust your life according to your school's class schedule. You must live your life in light of getting your schoolwork done and completing your required classes. If you are a farmer, well then, you must live your life in light of the seasons. You must adjust how you will spend your time in preparation for planting in the spring and for harvest in the fall. You'll be foolish not to. And here in in God's Word this morning, we are being told that there is something that is far more certain that we all must adjust our lives accordingly. That is, we must all live in light of God's perfect judgment. It's something that we all know is certain, no matter what someone may admit. God's Word has already shown us that everyone knows deep down inside of us, we all have a sense of that it is coming. Many are seeking to suppress the truth about it, but but they know. They know it's coming. Others will admit that they know. They have maybe even confessed that they believe in it, but they still try not to think about it and, and fail to take it seriously. While yet others, others have deceived themselves into thinking that God's judgment won't affect them. But instead, will only be for those who are are really bad. Those people who really deserve to be judged by God. Those are the ones who need to be concerned about it. But friends, God's word here is telling us that we will all be required to face God's judgment. It doesn't matter who you are, you will be judged. Therefore, we must all live in light of God's perfect judgment and be sure to flee to the way of salvation that he has provided us in his Son before that day arrives. So that's our our main theme here. Our main point is that we must all live in light of God's perfect judgment. As I told you a few weeks ago, Paul begins with the bad news in Romans 1 through 3 before he proclaims the wonderful good news of what Christ accomplished for us. If we didn't know the bad news of our situation before God, we would never run to Christ as our Savior. We would never recognize what God did for us in Christ as glorious and so desperately needed by us. So that's why we have the, good, the, the bad news here first. And in chapter 1, verses 18 through 32, Paul focused on the terrible sin and wickedness of mankind and how God's wrath is, is presently being revealed in his handing rebellious sinners over to the terrible consequences of their sinful desires. And now at the beginning of chapter 2, he addresses a different kind of sinner one who believes that he or she is far better than those wicked sinners who are condemned in chapter 1. This is someone who compares him or herself with those terrible sinners and and believes that he or she is morally superior to them. He or she is someone who trusts in their own righteousness and then treats others with contempt. Paul is saying, beware beware, we all must face the Lord in judgment. We all need the gospel, both the rebellious sinners outside of the faith and the morally self-righteous sinners who are often found inside of the church. We must all live in light of God's perfect judgment. So first in, chapter, in verses 1 through 3 of chapter 2, When we judge others, we call down judgment on ourselves. That's what we're seeing here in these first three verses. Let me read those for you again. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge, who you, you who judge those who practice such things, and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God. The Apostle Paul was, of course, a product of his time. He was well-educated. He was gifted in persuasion. He was at the level of some of the top lawyers uh, in our own time, making his, his case, making his arguments here in uh, the letter to Romans. And here in the midst of his teaching, the gospel he used a method that was quite common in that time. It is known as the diatribe. When a teacher imagines the responses and questions that a person hearing his argument would have, and so he crafts his argument, crafts his message, as if he is addressing that very person and answering those questions. As we make our way through Romans, you'll see that Paul uses this style of teaching throughout the letter. He has Certain people in mind, and here in these verses, he is addressing those who have just heard about the wrath of God being revealed on on these wicked, rebellious sinners, and this person would be tempted to think God's wrath will only be poured out on them, for they're the ones that really deserve it. They are the ones who deserve to be judged because they are such terrible sinners. And they join Paul in pointing their fingers at them and condemning them for their sins. But Paul here is saying, not so fast. Not so fast. The Apostle Paul knows his audience. He's like them. He was once a Pharisee who, if you remember from the Gospels, were known for their self-righteousness. Back in Luke 18, 9 through 14, the Lord Jesus tells a story comparing two men who were praying in the temple. One of the men was a Pharisee, and the other was a tax collector. In other words, one was a very religious, morally upstanding person, and the other was a known sinner who would have fit into the sin categories that we see in verses 29 and 32 in chapter 1. He would have been well known to be guilty of unrighteousness, of greed, of evil, of covetousness, of envy, and deceit. That's kind of the resume for the tax collector in those days. And Jesus tells us the Pharisee in that parable prayed to God like this. He said, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, those extortioners, the unjust, the adulterers, and even this Tax collector. So he was doing what Paul is describing here in these first three verses. He was passing judgment on another, actually, passing judgment on, on several others. He was declaring, I am not like them. They deserve judgment. And thankfully, I do not. Jesus then and says he went on to list his accomplishments. This Pharisee believed that he didn't deserve to be condemned, not only for what he avoided doing, but also for the wonderful things that he did. Jesus says that, he he said to, to, to God in this prayer, I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. Aren't you impressed with me? I do all these good things for you. Jesus described him as someone who trusted in himself that he was righteous and then treated others with contempt. And Jesus used that story to warn us, if that is who you are, if that is what we do, well then we will not be accepted by God. We we will in fact be condemned for our self-righteousness. So beware. Beware. Beware if this is your tendency. And here in Romans 2, the Apostle Paul is giving a similar warning as Jesus did in Luke 18. Beware if your tendency is to look down on others for their sin and wickedness and think that they deserve to be condemned, but then fail to realize that you are just as guilty as they are. That you practice the very same things that your hearts by nature are inclined in much the same way towards sin and away from God as they are. You just may be doing a better job of keeping your sins out of the public eye. Jesus taught us about that as well in the Gospel of Matthew. You know, Sure, you, you, you may not be openly committing adultery, he says there. You may not be sleeping around with people who you are not married to, but Jesus says there in Matthew 5, everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Guilty of the very same things. Or you may not have actually, you know, physically murdered somebody whom you hated. But Jesus said there, everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to To the hell of fire. Therefore you have no excuse, O man. Every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. It's always easier to notice and condemn the sins in others than it is to see the sins in our own attitudes and behaviors and realize that we are under the same condemnation. We have a tendency to be critical of everybody except ourselves. We are harsh in our condemnation of others, but quite tolerant towards ourselves. Paul's not saying that those, who are, who, those we are judging aren't actually deserving of judgment. They most definitely are. But the point he is making clear here is, so are we. We are guilty of the same sins. In passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, he says. Or more literally, you call down judgment on yourself. Because you, the judge, the one who has raised yourself up as the judge, practice the very same things. Again, maybe not openly, but in your heart. We might do a pretty good job of of looking like we are all doing the right things, but inside, in our hearts, we are lustful, we are prideful, we are envious, we are greedy, we are hateful, or we're faithless. You may not think you deserve the wrath of God for your sins. You may genuinely believe you are doing pretty well, but remember, you are not the judge. God is. No one will be judged according to our standards, but we all will be judged according to his. And his standard is perfect righteousness, both in our actions, in our thoughts, in our hearts. Do you suppose that you will escape the judgment of God? We all must live in light of God's judgment. We all desperately need to be saved from it in the way that God has provided, that is, in and through Jesus Christ. Secondly, verses 4 and 5, beware not to misinterpret God's patience. Beware not to misinterpret God's patience. Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath, when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Now, we misinterpret things often. If you've ever, you know, sent a text message to someone, maybe asking the person a question, and then no response. No response. You wait a day, maybe you wait two days, and then what what fills your mind about that message that, that, that you sent, about that question that you asked? You know, what's going on? Is it something I said? Did did I offend them? And then the more you think about it, the more you convince yourself that the person must be upset with you. He's purposely trying to let you know he's upset by not responding to your text. When, of course, what really happened was he just, you know, was really preoccupied when he first saw your message and intended To get back to you later when he had more time but just simply forgot or maybe someone gives you a gift someone gives you a gift someone who doesn't normally give you a gift and you think why are they giving me a gift they must want something from me they're trying to manipulate me there's ulterior motives behind this gift Trying to put you in their debt, when in, in reality they were just thinking of you and wanted to do something kind for you and to show you their appreciation, and so they they gave you a gift. And you misinterpret their intentions. Well, the Lord knows we are like that. He knows we're like that, particularly when sin clouds our judgment, which it does. Sin makes us stupid, it makes us foolish. So foolish that we misinterpret the kindness and patience that the Lord shows us as a sign that he really isn't all that concerned about our sin and our disobedience. That's why we see this warning here in verses 4 and 5. Do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard, independent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. God has been immeasurably kind to us, and not only to us, but everyone who has ever lived on this earth could testify to the Lord's goodness and kindness towards them. Psalm 145 tells us, The Lord is good to all, and His mercy is over all that He has made. And it goes on to say, the eyes of all look to you and you give them their food in due season. You open your hand. You satisfy the desire of every living thing. That's our God. That's what he does. Each one of us and every one of our neighbors, whether or not they know the Lord, could testify that they have food, they have clothing, they have shelter, and people who love and care for them. And that is all due to to the merciful kindness of the Lord. We don't deserve such mercy. We don't deserve such blessings, and yet we have it. We don't deserve all that the Lord has blessed us with, and yet we have these blessings because he has been merciful. We all still live only because God has determined that we should live. He has preserved our life and the lives of all who are yet living. And we are not to misinterpret the Lord's patience and kindness towards us. Here in verse 4, we are being made aware of one of the greatest dangers that humanity has in this world today. And it's not climate change. It's not our failure to control immigration across the southern border. It's not the threats of violence from Russia or Iran or China. One of the greatest dangers that we have in this world is failing to repent of our sin and self righteousness before it's too late. For it will soon be too late. This is like it was in the days of Noah. Remember that story from Genesis 6 and 7 that says in Genesis 6, chapter, uh, Genesis chapter 6, verse 5: The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually and then we read what the Lord had determined to do about that in verse 7 so the Lord it says uh, the Lord said I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land he will do that by sending a flood a great flood and we then read that he spoke to Noah who found favor who found grace in the sight of the Lord And he revealed to him that he was about to judge the world and destroy it by a flood. And he commanded Noah to build a huge ark in order for him and his family to be saved, as well as a remnant of the animals of the earth. Now, like all construction projects, this took quite some time to build. And of course, it wasn't exactly something that could be done in private, Everyone around had to know what Noah was doing. It took time, plenty of time, for people to hear from him why he was building this thing. And the scripture tells us that the people of the world, who had this clear demonstration and testimony of the certain coming of God's judgment on the world, still refused to repent and seek out the way of salvation that God had provided it says in 1 peter 3:20 they formerly did not obey when god's patience waited in the days of noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few that is eight persons were brought safely through the waters of god's judgment they all had time they all had time god was patient with them Allowing them the opportunity to turn, to repent. During all those years while Noah was building the ark, the sinners of those days were given time by God to repent. But they refused. They, like so many today, despised or showed contempt for the riches of God's kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. So we are all being warned here today. Don't be like them. God has provided you with a way of salvation like he provided the ark for Noah and his family back then. He has provided you with his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to save you. So come, repent, turn away from your sin, turn away from the self-righteousness that you have now, before it's too late, for the day is coming. The day is coming when judgment will fall on this earth. But sadly, most won't come. Most won't come. Just like in the days of Noah, we are told why in verse 5, because of your hard and penitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath, when God's righteous judgment will be Revealed. You see, we are not to misinterpret God's patience with sinners. His patience is not judgment forgotten. It is just judgment postponed. We are not to interpret the time he gives us as wrath nullified. It is simply wrath restrained for a time. And his kindness is meant to lead us to repentance. Repentance not just to carry on with our sins, not just continue to do the thing that we know is wrong, but yet, hey, nothing's happening. I can just go on living this way. Maybe you had younger siblings when you were growing up. I have four children, so that means that that three of my children have at least one younger sibling, that God has given them in order to teach them patience. And by God's grace, they've each exhibited patience towards their their younger siblings at various times. And each year, as they get older and more mature, they become even more patient. It's, It's remarkable to see. But no matter how patient an older sibling is, they all have their limit. You've observed it happen. I'm sure when the younger sibling is doing something to annoy the older one purposely and the older sibling's patience is being tested, wrath is being stored up, until finally, boom, there's retaliation against the younger one, and the younger one cries out immediately, Mom, Dad, have pity on me. Look what they're doing to me! And how do you respond as a parent? Well, what did you expect? You had it coming. So, what then should sinful humans expect if they keep insulting God, keep loving their sin, never turning from it, never. Re- repenting, never humbling themselves before God. What should they expect? What should you expect? If you have misinterpreted God's patience and kindness towards you as a license to continue in your sin and you continue to refuse to repent, it is like you have a spiritual savings account with God whereby every day that you sin without repentance, You make another deposit, and each day you are simply accumulating more and more wrath for the day of wrath at the return of Jesus Christ. Thirdly, in verses 6 through 11, God will judge each of us impartially according to the evidence. So Paul told us in verse 5 that the great day of wrath is coming, When God's righteous judgment will be revealed, now we learned in chapter 1, verse 18, that God's wrath is being manifested, is being revealed in the present through God handing over unrighteous or unrepentant sinners to be enslaved by their own sinful desires. So that's happening in the present. But here in verse 5, Paul is now informing us about a time, a day in the future, when God's wrath will be decisively and universally revealed. That is what verses 6 through 11 are describing for us. These verses explain what will take place on that day. And my friends, this means that God is not hiding this from anyone. He does not intend for this to be a shocking surprise. He wants us to know what it will be like. He wants us to take it seriously. He wants us to be prepared for it. He wants you to make sure you have repented of your sin and have run to Christ, the Savior, and have taken refuge in him to save you from this terrible day. Let's read this again, verses 6 through 11. And you will notice um, the parallel lines that, that, that Paul uses in this Paragraph. partiality. From these verses, we are shown something in God's Word that we see over and over again that is ultimately there will only be two types of people in the world who have ever lived. These parallel statements in these verses show us the differences between these two groups in what we seek, in what we do, where we are going, and what we will receive on that day. There are just two final destinies for all humankind, and it will either be eternal life or wrath. Either tribulation and distress or glory, honor, and peace. But what will determine which of these we will receive? These verses say it will be our works, what we do, how we lived, Whether we were doing evil with the life that the Lord has given us or doing good. And this, of course, is where many evangelicals like us get a little nervous. But I'm just repeating what it says here in verse 6 He will render to each one according to his works. It's not the only place in the scriptures where we are told that we will be judged according to our works whether good or evil. Matthew seven twenty one, Jesus says there, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, went to the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Matthew 16, 27, For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. John 5, 28-29, An hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear the voice of the Son of Man, and come out those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. So God wants us to know what to expect. He wants us to know just what we will be, the criteria by which we will be judged on that great day. And over and over again, we are shown the principle that God will use on the day of judgment to declare who was truly saved in this life, and who was not, who truly belonged to Christ, and who didn't, who he truly knew as his, and whom he didn't, we will be judged according to the evidence. A tree will be known by its fruit. We will reveal what is in our hearts by how we speak, by how we act, by how we treat others, be assured, Paul is not arguing that anyone will be justified before God by his works. That is, no one is made right with God or declared to be righteous by what he has done. Remember, this is Romans, okay? This is the book of Romans, which clearly teaches us that we are justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. We are not saved by works of the law, but by grace, not a result of works, Ephesians 2 says, so that no one may boast. Scripture never teaches that good works are the root of salvation, but it clearly teaches that good works are the fruit of salvation. Right after Paul declares we are saved by grace through faith in Ephesians 2.8, he says in verse 10, for we are his worksmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So if we have Christ in our hearts, it'll show forth by our works, by how we live our lives. This past Wednesday night in youth group, we were studying James 2, 14-26, where James argues there that faith without works is dead. That is, if you're not showing your faith by what you do, by how you live, well then you don't have faith. You don't have saving faith. Because if you have saving faith, it will be shown forth by your works. So on Judgment Day, our works will be revealed before God, and they will reveal, they will show forth, whether we had genuine faith or not. On the final day, our lives will be the validation either of our salvation in Christ or our damnation for our refusal to repent and trust in Christ. And that judgment will be according to the evidence. As they say today, God will have the receipts. He'll have the receipts, He'll lay them out before us. We will see whether or not we showed that we have faith. We have saving faith. God's judgment is coming. It is certain, and it will be completely impartial, and it will be perfect. That is what we see in this passage. What are you seeking with your life? Are you, by patience and well-doing, seeking for glory and honor and immortality? That is, living for the kingdom to come, living by the kingdom's values? Or are you self-seeking, or more literally, contentious, not obeying the truth of God's word, thinking that you're better off doing it on your own, thinking that you know better than God with how to live your life? If so, if you continue in that way, there will be wrath and fury poured out on you for eternity. An eternity of tribulation and distress is what it says. And it won't matter if you come from a good family or if you grew up in church or if this is the first time you've ever even come to church in your life. God shows no partiality. He has the same standard for everyone. But as we already noted... In chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, a few weeks ago. The gospel is the power of God for what? For salvation to everyone who believes. Everyone. To the Jew first, also to the Greek. That is for everyone, no matter where you come from, no matter what your background is, it is the same for everyone. It has the power of God to save you if you put your faith in Christ and what he's accomplished for in it it goes on to say the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith as is written the righteous shall live by faith that is the way to salvation God has revealed it to you before the great day of judgment so put your faith in Christ he is your righteousness he is your justification before God he is your salvation Realize how kind God has been to you in giving you this time, giving you this opportunity to repent of your sin, to repent of your self-righteousness, and humble yourself before him and confess your need for the salvation that only he can provide you. And if you do, you will see your heart changed, your life changed, the direction of your life moving in a different way. And you will be judged by those works, those good works that are to come. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, I pray that you would help each one of us, that you would help us to recognize and see that we are all in need of the gospel. Not one of us here has has it within us to be uh, accepted in your sight just as we are. We all need Christ. We all need his righteousness to cover us. We all need his spirit, the power of his spirit to change our hearts so that we would begin to live for him. Not in a perfect way, but in a real way, a genuine way. So I pray, Lord, for everyone in here that we would all put our hope and faith in Christ alone and be changed. Help us, Lord, to prepare for that day. And help us also, Father, to prepare others. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.